Good morning. Over the past few weeks, we have been looking at some fundamentals of the Christian faith, and today we are considering generosity. So what does generosity mean? I suspect if I asked you all to give me your definition, there would be as many different meanings as there are people here, because it isn't, in fact, necessarily easy to define. You don't necessarily know generosity, even when you think you see it. Or, uh, to put it another way, some of the things you don't see or didn't even notice involve real generosity. Confused? Well, let's consider a few situations to see if they help. Let's say someone steals a valuable piece of equipment uh, from his workplace, sells it on eBay, but takes some of the proceeds of that sale and makes a donation to a good cause. Is that generosity or theft? Well, it's theft, plain and simple. Or someone offers their time to work for a charity, but there are conditions attached, strings attached. You can have my help, providing that I get to do the jobs that I like doing and don't have to do the jobs that I don't like doing. So is that generosity or maybe manipulation? I think it's probably manipulation. What about someone who is facing retirement in a few months' time and makes a big donation to help the aged? Is that generosity or strategic planning? My point in asking these questions is to help us try to discern the true definition of generosity because we use this word so broadly in our society today. And why is this important? Because in the New Testament reading we shared this morning, the Apostle Paul challenges a young pastor named Timothy who was then running a small church, an early Christian community, and challenged him to tell the people in his congregation to be generous or, as the message paraphrase puts it, tell them to be extravagantly generous. And the reading from Acts tells us about the first church, what a Christian community can look like where real generosity, based on the teachings of Jesus and inspired by the Holy Spirit, where generosity is part of the way of life. And it's not all about money. That's something I want to emphasize this morning. Generosity is not all about giving financially. It's not all about money. In fact, it rarely is. Now, pretty much everybody thinks that generosity is a good idea. In Buddhism, one of the ten perfections is generosity. It's considered to be the primary antidote to greed. And the Quran repeatedly extols the virtue of generosity. Some say that generosity is liberality in giving or a magnanimous spirit, an abundance mentality, a joyful exuberance in sharing stuff, a willingness to sacrifice for others with no strings attached. Well, maybe those definitions help a bit. But what I want to do is to remind you of three stories from the Bible that I hope will eventually get to the root of what we're talking about, this thing called generosity being generous, and perhaps move you to take a fresh look at your own position. Well, the first story is about a single mother. 
She was also a widow, and it's recorded in the Old Testament book of Kings. And this woman and her son were in a very difficult situation. There was a famine in her country where water and food was scarce, and she had just enough flour and just enough oil to make one small loaf of bread. And her plan was to eat that with her son, and then they would lie down next to each other, and the Bible records that they were then going to die. It's a pretty depressing prospect. Now, as she was contemplating this, a prophet of God named Elijah arrived in her town. He had already been used powerfully by God, but he too had been affected by this same famine. And God wasn't done yet with Elijah. He had a plan for him. He'd done many incredible things, but God still had work for Elijah to do. And so told Elijah to go to this particular town, find the widow and the little boy, and to move in with her. And so the prophet, obedient to God, arrived at the home of this single mother and this little boy, and he said to her, God told me to move in with you. Now I can picture the woman saying, well, that's fine. You're going to have the whole place to yourself pretty soon because my son and I are going to use this last bit of flour and this last bit of oil and then we're going to die. And so you're going to have the whole house all to yourself. And Elijah said, there's one more thing. <clears throat> Not only am I moving in with you, but God told me you're to feed me. From those nearly empty jars of flour and oil that you have, you're supposed to feed me first. And if you feed me first, God is going to resupply the flour and the oil. So I'm just going to go off to wash my hands for dinner. You light the stove and trust me, this is all going to work out fine. But you must feed me first. Well, what would you do if you were that woman? I'd have been very tempted to slam the door in his face. I don't care what he's saying. I've only got enough left for the Last Supper with my son, and then we're going to die. And this guy arrives, says he's going to move in, and says, feed me first. And if you do, it'll all be good. I'm sure the woman was saying, how do I know for sure that God's going to resupply like the prophet says. Well, friends, in a way, all of us are in the same position as that widow every time we're prompted by God to act generously in any way. When we're moved to make a gift to the poor, when we're moved to help somebody in need, when we're moved to be obedient in helping to resource our church by giving of our time and our talents when we are moved to do something sacrificial. We feel the Holy Spirit prompting us towards generosity, but then we wonder, is God really concerned about me? Does God have my back in this situation? Will he see and honour this expression of generosity? Will he resupply or won't he? And how you answer that question determines how faithful and generous you're going to be over time. 
If you trust that God is behind you and supporting you, if he promises to resupply, why why wouldn't you be generous? But we struggle with this. I struggle with this. Often we're afraid to be extravagantly generous because we fear that the cost, whether in terms of time or effort or money, and the risk is too big. And so we've got to hold tight to everything we have. Whatever resource it might be, we hold it tightly. And yet the Bible is clear. We read in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, And this same God who takes care of me will supply, will resupply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. He will resupply. Now, if that promise of resupply is real, why wouldn't we take the step of giving generously of our resources, of holding our possessions, our abilities, and our time much less tightly. We'd hold them lightly. So back to our story. Well, the prophet got ready for dinner, and the woman thought, I'm going to trust that God is going to resupply, just like the prophet says. And so the story tells us that she made the final loaf of bread and brought it to Elijah. And when she returned to the kitchen, God had resupplied the oil and the flour. And so she made some more bread using all the flour and the oil and took it this time to her son who was very, very hungry, just short of starvation, and he ate the lot. And she went back into the kitchen and the jars had been resupplied again. And so she made some for herself, ate it, and when she came back into the kitchen, the jars contained flour and oil. And the Bible says that God resupplied the flour and the oil for a long time until the famine had ended. There was enough to feed all three of them. Now, it may be that they got pretty sick of bread, but they didn't die. And I like to think that she experimented a bit, maybe a ciabatta or some focaccia, maybe a bagel or a baguette. The point is, If you believe, if you truly believe the promise of God's ability to resupply, it will move you towards generosity. And however fearful I have been over the years, I can tell you of times when God has resupplied me and my family. All over this church there will be resupply stories where people have taken risks, have stepped out in faith and relied on God, and God has come through for them in amazing ways. Now the second story is from the life of King David, you know, as in David and Goliath, or David and Bathsheba, the person described in Acts as the man after God's own heart. Now in the early days of his life, David was meticulous in acknowledging and honoring God. The Bible says he was obedient in every way, and God favored and blessed his life. David became a leader, a politician, an artist, a poet, a warrior, 
and an orator. And in his day, he was world famous. And David knew that all of this was because of the favor of God on his life. But then, as he got a little older, and as so often happens to wealthy and powerful people, the blessings of God started to go to his head. And he started to put a bit of a spin on the story of his success. And when people asked him how he had climbed to such heights, he began saying, well, I started young and I was a fast learner. I was a little cleverer than the next person. I worked hard and forced my way to the top from the lowest rung all by my own efforts. And then it all went wrong. One day, David said to his general, Joab, I want you to go out and count how many people there are in my army. How many troops do we actually have? And Joab said, David, I know where you're going with this. You just want to know the size of your army so that when you meet foreign kings and rulers, you can boast and brag about how big your army is. And the general said, David, I plead with you. We grew up together. God saved us from our enemies. God favored and blessed our lives. Don't allow yourself to become arrogant. If I give you that number and you go around boasting about it, it's going to ruin everything. Everything that God has done for us. Please don't do this. But David ignored his friend's warning, and so Joab and the other commanders all went off and counted the troops. And it took them nine months and 20 days, and when they were finished, they returned and gave David the number. Now, I'll come back to that in just a moment. But how many of us started out in our teens and early 20s with virtually nothing? that we had ordinary jobs or were starting new careers and had no idea what the future held. But over time, good things started to happen. We did well in our jobs. We found someone special and started a family. God caused people and opportunities to come into our lives. And here we are later on in life, perhaps at a stage we never dreamed we would be at when we were just starting out. And along the way, maybe sometimes we gave God the credit, but then sometimes, perhaps too often to admit, we did what David did. We changed the narrative. We started saying to ourselves, if not to others, you know what, I did most of this myself. We started believing that God wasn't really involved that much after all. And so before you know it, God is no longer responsible for what we have or what David had. God is no longer in charge. We say it's ours. We believe it's ours. After all, we built it. We earned it. We struggled and practiced and rehearsed so that we had that talent. It was us who did it. And we start talking about all that we own and what we're going to do with all of our stuff. So Joab came back and said, David, here's your number. 1.3 million soldiers. Now you go and brag. And in that moment, 
David realized what had driven him to want that number. He realized that he had done a very foolish thing. And according to the book of Samuel, he said to God, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. Well, God disciplined David for this act, and the punishment was severe. Read 2 Samuel 24 sometime to hear the full account. But by now, David had come to his senses. He knew he needed to apologize to God, and so he decided to build an altar and offer a sacrifice, because that's how you apologize to God in that day. You bought a plot of land and you built an altar. The idea being that every time you pass that altar from then on, you would be reminded of the mistake that you had made and reminded that you had made things right with God. So David went out to build the altar, and as he approached the place he had chosen, the owner of that piece of land asked him while he was there, why he was there. And when he heard that the king wanted some land to build an altar, he offered it to David for nothing, and said that David could also have an ox for the sacrifice and some wood for the fire as well. He even offered his own workmen to build the altar so that David wouldn't get his royal hands dirty. But David said, no, I insist on buying it. I'll pay you cash and I'm going to construct the altar stone by stone myself. And here is the important line. For I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. And in that moment, David regained his integrity. He recaptured his humility, he reordered his priorities and recognized that all that he had came from the generous hand of God. He was now going to repent of his arrogance and he wanted to give a gift that really cost him something. He knew deep down, what we all know deep down, that expressions of generosity reveal the true condition of our heart. Expressions of generosity reveal the true condition of our heart. Now, some men have learned this lesson the hard way. And I want to just spend a few moments speaking, particularly to the men or or any partners here this morning. This is a brief micro-teach session, if you like, that might help you avoid a critical mistake in the future. Now, my wife, like most women, loves flowers. She really loves flowers. And occasionally, I buy her some. And on those occasions, she is usually shocked that I would go to that trouble, but she's also really grateful. Now, I have learned, painfully learned, that not all gifts of flowers are of equal worth. Lesson point one. The best place to buy flowers for your beloved is a flower shop. They sell the best and most expensive flowers. Point number two. Nowadays, it's also okay to get flowers for your partner from the supermarket, as long as you don't buy the ones that are on offer and are beginning to wilt. But, and this is point three, 
It is never okay, it is never all right to pick up some flowers on the way home from a bucket on the forecourt of a garage. Because she or your partner will know instinctively that you didn't put much thought into the purchase. And she will know that the flowers were cheap and she will be suspicious that you are trying to atone for some sin or other. Believe me on this, she would rather not get the flowers at all. Please don't give your partner garage flowers because a gift of flowers is supposed to reveal that you value someone. The nature of the gift, the quality of the gift, its cost reveals something of the nature and quality of your heart. You know, every time you give something to God, every time, it's either freshly cut quality roses that cost you something and that reveal your heart of love for him. Or you throw something his way and he sees it as garage bought flowers. He knows the condition of your heart every time. And so he knows if you're a reluctant, begrudging giver. He knows if you're giving leftovers and things you don't need anyway. He also sees and hears when you do something that says, everything that I have comes from such a generous God. And every time I consider giving something, whether it's time or ability or compassion or love, or I show interest or I give a gift of money, I want to be moved in a way that would give a beautiful, heartfelt, worship-filled, honoring offering to God. And when God sees that, that's when the windows of heaven open up. That's when he pours a blessing down on your life because he sees your heart. And so I'll say it one last time. Don't ever give garage-bought flowers to God. The third and final story is very well known, and it's recorded in the Gospels of both Luke and Mark, and it's the story of the widow's mite. Now, both accounts tell us that on this day, Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, and perhaps for a rest, He sat down for a while opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting money into the temple treasury. Now, after watching for a while, he turned to his disciples and he said to them, and I'm paraphrasing here, small gifts really matter to my father. I don't know if you knew that, guys. Small gifts really matter to my father. Large gifts are, of course, appreciated as well. But often when someone gives a large gift, there's still so much left over in their account. There is still so much left in reserve that their large gift doesn't even cause a ripple on their lifestyle pond. No meals are missed. No spending patterns are changed. No quality of life decisions are at stake. A wealthy person makes a large gift and simply carries on with his life with plenty left over to live on. But, Jesus says, I just want you to understand something. It's different when someone with very limited means gives generously. And he points to the widow and he says, you see that widow who just put two coins? Those coins are the lowest denomination coins in circulation, those two mites. They are virtually worthless. Most people, 
if they dropped them on the floor, wouldn't bother to pick them up. But that's all she put in, yet for her that small gift was a huge demonstration of her faith in God. It involved a huge step of faith. She doesn't have anything else. She's going back home to empty cupboards. And so Jesus was saying, it's not the size of the gift that matters, as much as the size of the faith required to give the gift. It's not the size of the gift that matters, so much as the size of the faith required to give the gift. That's what really moves the hearts of the Father. And there are people here, I know, on very tight budgets, especially given the cost of living crisis. And do you think my small offering isn't going to matter a jot in the overall scheme of things? My pound or two doesn't matter. But the point of this story is to remind you that your small gift really matters to the Father because it's not the size of the gift, it's the size of the faith required to give the gift that God sees and God will honour and will bless. So don't ever get the idea that your offering whether of time or resources, would be pointless. God will bless you, and you'll be ennobled by feeling that you're generous and obedient, and you'll be glad that you gave. I hope we'll all be big-hearted and open-handed in our generosity, not just with money, with whatever resources we have available to us, our time, our skills, our abilities, our active concern for others. I hope we'll be people who are totally convinced that God will resupply in due time our expressions of obedience. I hope we realise that when God moves us towards generosity, he's hoping that we'll give fresh-cut flowers. And remember, whatever your circumstances that God loves small gifts because often it takes a big faith to give a small gift.